Hello and welcome to the Vexillogicast. Uh, recently back from San Francisco and now in Philadelphia, I'm Simon the Cannibal. And this is a short episode because I fear that I've run out of time to do research and record a full episode. I'm going to quickly go through a, a couple of questions a listener has sent in. Um, this is going to be unedited, so you're going to have to deal with me umming and awing. And I hope to get an episode out to you. I hope to record an episode on Thursday and have it out to you on Friday. I will put show notes up at vexillogicast.com as usual. That is V E X I L L O G I C A S T dot com. So feel free to head on over there, yell at me, tell me how much you uh, are disappointed in the fact that I have only recorded a very short, unedited episode for you this week, and get on my ass about creating a full episode for you within the next 48 hours. So let's hop right into listener mail. A listener contacted me about the dyes used in creating the Dutch flag, especially about the blue dyes used in the Dutch flag. And so these vegetable dyes and natural dyes decayed at different rates, um, but they all decayed. They all would eventually turn into... Well, I shouldn't say all. To my knowledge, they would all deteriorate into a, a different color, like a brown or that sort of thing. Blue dyes came from indigo and woad. Um, red dyes came from madder, uh, M-A-D-D-E-R, which apparently was a huge, huge deal. Um, they found remnants of madder in King Tut's tomb. And that is the tra traditional dye used for the British Army to create their red coats. It was ubiquitous, and it was replaced uh, uh, by synthetic dyes. All these dyes were replaced by synthetic dyes. Indigo, what we now know as you know the blue jean color, is a synthetic dye, uh, or I should say, created through a synthetic process. And I just wanted to mention briefly that the first synthetic tie was mauvine. I might be pronouncing that incorrectly, which was discovered by a scientist trying to create synthetic quinine from coal tar. And it turned out to be a purplish dye, which turned into a huge sensation in the UK. They dyed a lot of things. It, it's kind of a... Um, a pinkish purple, and it was the first synthetic dye created, and it worked really well on silks, and then it also works, as do most synthetic dyes, on synthetic fabrics. And as a side note to that side note, and we're going to go down the rabbit hole a little bit on this one, purple, as a, synth as a natural dye, excuse me, was created from the shells of some mollusks or something like that. And it was very difficult to produce, which is why it was the most expensive dye for a long time, royal purples and that sort of thing. And these purples, came, uh, these uh, mollusks were found uh, in Lebanon around Tyre, and it's called Tyrian 
purple or Tyrian purple. I'm not entirely sure. And I should, we'll go one more on the rabbit hole. Being um, of Lebanese descent, I, I just find that kind of an interesting connection that this very expensive purple, you know, has, has made it such that there are no flags that use purple because all the flags were created before the synthetics found their way into flags uh, generally or, or, or the spectrum of flag colors. And so you don't see the use of purple because it was so expensive before synthetics really hit the market. Um, the second question that was thrown at me was, have synthetic dyes and fabrics changed flag design and has the digital age changed flag design and colors and flags? And I would say absolutely. Um, you see a lot of the flags that were made after synthetics came out and especially after the processes that allow one to put dyes on cloth um, become much more intricate and much gr more greatly detailed. And this is where you see a lot of the rules being broken in flag design. That being said, the synthetics also make for better flags, easier to fly flags, flags that you can put outside in the rain. Um, you might not think about it, but these cotton flags or flags that came out of a, a natural thread, you, if you put them in the rain, they're going to get wet, they're going to get sogged very soggy, and they're not going to fly. They're not going to do what a flag is supposed to do, which is flap around in the wind. But with a nylon flag, with uh, uh, a polyester flag or something like that, it's not going to get, it's not going to be so affected by rain or by inclement weather. And the dyes are going to hold for longer, though they will, of course, still bleach out. There is a great photo of... Uh, or I should say, a rendering of what the U.S. flag on the moon would look like. Um, and it, you can distinctly see there are stripes, there are stars, but only because that's where the stitching, because it was all stitched on. And then, uh, so it's this, this ghost flag, if you will. The third question is about, about the use of seals on flags, which I'll get into in this upcoming episode on U.S. state flags. Earlier flags were... Uh, uh, again, vexillolo vexillology is a subdiscipline of heraldry, and so these knights and whatnot who would have shields would have simple shields that they painted themselves so they could be identified on the battlefield or whatever it might be. Older places that have older flags are usually just in some way turning that shield that coat of arms into a flag like the flag of Amsterdam that was mentioned last episode is just taking the sh the coat of arms the shield portion of the coat of arms turning it 90 degrees and putting it on a, a piece of fabric there wasn't the same 
necessity for simplicity in the U.S. Um, and a lot of the designers conflated seals with a thing that should go on a flag. Um, and I, I should say that uh, I'm distinguishing, I, I should distinguish between coats of arms and seals, although they overlap a lot. Seals are especially meant to be complex. They're meant to say, you know, bam, you know, here's this thing that is going to make this counterfeit proof. You have wax seals, you have uh, pressed into paper seals, that sort of thing. So your counterproofing method is the seal, but you are making a national design, especially with the United States. I think Francis Hopkinson, who I mentioned, mentioned in episode one, created the first U.S. seal as well. Um, and so it's part of this uh, uh, national branding that the seal comes out, and even state branding that the seal comes out. And you see a lot of the, the paperwork coming first, and then this seal that's supposed to be on paperwork ending up on a flag. I was surprised to learn in doing research for this, what is supposed to be this episode, that the flag of Pennsylvania goes back to uh, the late 1700s, early 1800s, and it had the seal on it then. And I, I was very surprised to learn that. I had suspected that coats of arms and seals came about in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when you had more of a, a print industry going on. And I should mention that those of you who are interested in the study of seals, um, there is a branch of learning called uh, sigillography, which you can look up and learn a little bit more about seals, seal design, seal creation. And there is a whole big thing about Byzantine seals because there are so few and deciphering them and a whole community about that that I stumbled into. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm very sorry that this is going to be a short episode. I will do my research tonight. Uh, I will write a script and get an episode up as soon as possible. I hope to record Thursday afternoon and have it up for you by Friday morning, edit and that sort of thing, and have it on Friday morning. I hope you're okay with this guy, and I'm just going to sing you the outro, and I... Uh, Thank you for listening and thank you for putting up with me. We'll drink strong ale and porter. We'll make the rafters roar. And when our money is all spent, we'll go to sea once more.